We're in Romans 5 this morning, continuing our study in the gospel according to Paul. A study that we've called for our purposes, Grace Revealed. And we'll talk more about why that title before we're done. Romans chapter 5. When I was in elementary school, fourth or fifth grade, I think fifth grade, but it doesn't really matter. When I was in elementary school, had a teacher leave in the middle of the year, like February or so. If I remember correctly, and it was a long time ago, his father was sick, broke a hip, needed, need, he needed to go home to his, his father who lived in upstate Minnesota. So we, we got a new teacher to finish the year, young teacher. Looking back, I wouldn't have known to think about it at the time, but probably just out of school. What I remember clearly, though, was her new, new for the 70s, free to be you and me, except not really, approach to classroom management. New style of discipline that I hadn't encountered before in my many years in fourth grade. <laughs> This, this, was her, this was her game plan. If everyone, everyone behaved, if everyone got through the quiz without talking, if everyone made it through lunch without fighting, the whole class got rewarded. Free time, extra recess. I actually don't know what it would have been because I can't remember that it ever happened. <laughs> but the other part of the deal... Everyone behaved, the whole class got rewarded. The other part of the deal was if even one person messed around, the entire class got punished. No recess, no free time, lots of extra work. I do remember that because it happened quite a lot. Did I mention this was fourth grade? This is not an age known for self-discipline. Self-control, still a work in progress at that point. To, and, and it very quickly got ridiculous. Because I remember, I remember we had one kid in our class named Mike Lewis. And, and this, just, this just destroyed his brain, this whole group punishment thing. To the point where he would find the one who talked during the quiz and lost recess for all of us, and he'd beat him up after school. But the very next day, he'd be the one talking and losing recess for the rest of us. Because it just, it, 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 at that age, I knew that you couldn't expect this from kids that age. I knew it when I was that age. And I remember that, that it, it caused an uproar in the school. Started with the students getting angry, obviously. You're going to punish me because she talked. Started with the students getting angry. Pretty soon the parents got angry because we weren't learning anything. We were just coming home frustrated. Eventually the teachers got angry and, 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 and started, you know, what you're doing is spilling over into my class and you're wrecking school for everybody. It was a whole thing. That fall, she was not back. And I think the only person surprised was her. Because she was quite confident that she had the, 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 the key that was going to unlock education for everybody. But everybody knew. It was clear to everyone but her. You can't punish a whole class for one student's bad behavior. Can't punish a community for an individual's transgression. 
So why does God get to do it? Because he does, right? And if we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in Romans 5, picking up in verse 12 this morning, Paul's reminding us of that. Through one man, Romans 5.12, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Through one man, Adam. Same thing we read about a year ago in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam all die. Funny thing about that verse, when I was serving at my first church in New Jersey, group of teens had a Christian metal band by that name, In Adam All Die. I think my wife still has a concert t-shirt from them. <laughs> but here's the funny part, because God is hilarious this way. The lead singer from that band is now a pastor, and he reached out to me last month and said, hey, would you be on my board of trustees? God's just weird sometimes. But, but, I, but I think... But, Think about that for a moment. Still verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. One man's sin, sin spreads to everyone. And I get that's not a new idea. We've talked about this probably almost every week in our study through Romans, how Adam crashed the universe, brought sin and death into the world. But think about it for a moment. How is that fair why should we be punished because of Adam's lack of self-control? It's not a dopey question. For me, it was actually a pretty big question. As a new believer, that, that hurt my brain. As, and, and even before that, as someone who was seeking after God, trying to decide what to do about this book, investigating the truth claims of Christ, the whole idea of Adam's sin coming down and bringing hurt on me was a thing. It messed with me. Maybe it's messing with you this morning. Or somebody that you're trying to share Jesus with, or somebody that you will share Jesus with in the future. Regardless, I, I want to tap the brakes this morning and talk about this a little bit. It'd be easy to just blow past what Paul just said. I don't want to do that. I want to dig into it. This issue of group punishment. Con condemnation of an entire species. Cor corruption of all of creation Really, because of one guy's transgression. That's going to be part one this morning. If you're taking notes, bullet point number one, condemnation. Once we get on the same page about that, once we get our, our feet under us there, we'll move on and read more of what Paul has to say about justification. He's talking about it constantly. We're going to keep trying to grasp it and hopefully enjoy it because it's amazing. And then we'll wrap up, third point this morning, we're going to look at the continuation of this process. The interplay between condemnation and justification and how it continues to unfold today and our role in it. Condemnation, justification, continuation, and if all goes well, we'll make it almost to the bottom of the chapter. But we're starting in verse 12, and let's read it again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And thus, death spread to all men, pause, just as. What does that tell us? It tells us Paul thinks we know this. Paul's assuming this is well-traveled ground, that we're familiar with what he's talking about, that we're comfortable with the concept. Because he throws it out there, and he just keeps referring to it. Verse, we haven't read the whole passage, but just skim down with me. Second part of verse 15. 
by, one, by the one man's offense, many died. Second part of verse 16, the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. First part of verse 17, by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Paul seems really sure this is true. <laughs> he just told us six times in a handful of verses that we were born sinners, born with a sin nature, not because of anything we did, but because of whatever, everything that Adam did. Paul's really sure that it's true, and he's really expecting us to believe that it's true because just, just I went super fast, but you can, you can discern the structure that he's building, right? The infrastructure of, of his argumentation. We haven't gotten there yet, but, but where he's going, he's building, and if this is true, then that is true kind of framework, He's, he's going for, if this is the way this works, then this has to be the way that works. But the thing about it, there's no, there's no point in talking about that if we're still squishy on this. If, if I say everyone in Minnesota is a genius, therefore Patrick is a genius, you're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You haven't convinced me of the Minnesota part yet. In fact, I think you might be the counterexample. Me. If, I, if, if Paul is saying if X is true, then Y is true. Just like X happens, Y happens. Before we talk about Y, we got to be convinced of X. X is, if you want to get logical and technical, the antecedent here is verse 12. The antecedent, the X, through one man, sin entered the world. Let's talk about that before we go on. Because, yeah, we know the one man is Adam. But how did he spoil it for the rest of us? How does that make sense? How is, how is this fair? Turns out throughout church history, lots of people have come up with lots of ways to try to explain this. And, and a lot of them don't hold water. But there's two that people point to, two that I know of because I'm a pastor, not a theologian, that, that people go to to try to explain what Paul is assuming here. What he's assuming we understand when he says, through one man, sin entered the world. The first way people explain this is what's called seminal theory. S-E-M-I-N-A-L. Seminal as in, yes, semen. Seminal as in seed. And the seminal view of this whole thing is that Adam contained the seed of his future descendants when he sinned. When Adam sinned, we were in his loins, so to speak. So his corruption, the corruption that he brought on himself, became our corruption. Now, if you're like me, you say, ooh. <laughs> we were in his, really. <laughs> but before you dismiss it, flip over to Hebrews chapter 7. Or just listen. But if you're a note taker, if you write in your Bible... Hebrews 7 is where I'm going to go in a moment. Because there's a biblical way to build this case, and it's not a bad way. If you want to make an argument for this seminal theory, the best way to do it is in Hebrews 7. It's been a while since we were in Hebrews, but you remember that Hebrews is all about Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is a priest better than the priesthood of Aaron. 
He's a priest like Melchizedek. And, and on the way to making that point, the author of Hebrews says something interesting. He says in verse 9 that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, either you remember who Melchizedek is or you don't, but back in Genesis, who paid tithes to Melchizedek? Those of you who are tracking. Abraham. So this, this, this should make a warning bell go off. Who was Levi to Abraham? Great-grandson. Wasn't alive when it happened. So, so what's going on here? Levi wasn't alive, but the author of Hebrews says he tithed to Melchizedek. Verse 9, let's read it. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, in a manner of speaking, figuratively, or maybe not, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You thought I made up that whole loins part. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't think of stuff like that. So that's the argument for the seminal view. Just as Abraham's tithes were credited to his great-grandson Levi, we're going to use the word imputed this morning, just as Abraham's tithes were imputed to Levi, even though Levi was only a seed of Abraham when it happened, in the same way Adam's sins, his sin really, was imputed to us because we're sin, uh, seeds of Adam. I'll say that again and I'll try to get it right. Adam's sin was imputed to us because we were the seed of Adam. Some of you aren't buying it. That's okay. If that doesn't do it for you, there's another way to get there, another approach, another theory. This one's called representative view. We've got seminal view, which we just talked about. Representative view says, yeah, Adam alone committed the sin, but he did it as a representative of the whole human race. An, an easy analogy would be when we send someone to Congress as our representative... They make choices, but the choices that they make affect not only themselves, but us too. Another analogy. I'm a father, I'm a husband. When I make choices that, well, when I make choices, period, it affects me, but it also affects my family. So when Adam disobeyed as our representative, as the head of our family, it has consequences for everyone. Patrick, you had a biblical basis for that first one, that seminal one. Is there a biblical argument for this one? Sure. Think Joshua 7. Don't have to turn there. Battle of Ai, Israel loses. <laughs> Turns out it's Achan's fault, right? God said, don't loot the enemy. He looted the enemy. Achan alone sinned, but Joshua 7, the whole family was put to death. Why? Because Achan, as the head of the family, his sin polluted the whole family. Neither explanation is perfect. Seminal representative. You get, the deeper you dig, the more you realize they both have strengths and weaknesses. You, you've already spotted some, I'm sure. Which one is right? I don't know. Is it possible both are right? There are scholars who think so. Is it possible that both are close but not quite? That could be too. But what we know for sure is that ever since Adam, Psalm 51 verse 5, We've been brought forth in iniquity. 
Ever since Adam, we're born guilty. You and I, natural-born sinners, were born, Paul tells us here, into condemnation. How do we know? How can we be sure? How can we tell? Paul tells us that too. Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, we know we're born in condemnation because we can see it. We can tell we have proof of it because people die. God said it would be like that. Genesis 2.17. God tells Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He ate of it. And he died. But because we're born into his guilt, because in Adam all sinned, in Adam, all die. Now this is where Paul's reader up in Rome, you remember his imaginary debate partner, is going to jump in and say, wait, time out, Paul. I thought we were sinners because we sinned. I thought we became sinners when we broke the law. And Paul says, nuh-uh. <laughs> we're not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we're sinners. See, Paul is anticipating the objection. And he says, verse 13, the reality is until the law, before the law, sin was in the world but not imputed when there is no law. Even when there wasn't a law to break, people still died. Sin and, and, and death were in the world for centuries. Conservatively, at least a thousand years before Moses, before the law was given. Why did people die if there wasn't a law for them to break? Why did people die if their sin hadn't been defined by statute and ordinance and regulation yet? Answer, because of Adam's sin. Look halfway through verse 15. By the one man's offense, many died. Now to be clear, pause for just a moment. Paul's talking about physical death. Those who trusted in God's promise of salvation, those who believed God back in Genesis when he promised to send a Messiah, a Deliverer, a Savior, they were still saved eternally. Nevertheless, verse 14, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come, people died even if they didn't sin like Adam sinned. People died even if they didn't sin like Adam sinned because they'd already sinned in Adam. Condemnation. We're born into it. And that's our first point this morning. But remember, that's not Paul's point. We said at the beginning, Paul is talking about this. He's, he's bringing up all of this condemnation stuff, not because that's his point. He's already talked about that in earlier chapters. He's bringing it up to make a point, and now we're ready for his point. And it's a glorious one. Why is Paul talking about this in Adam all die stuff? Verse 15, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, Adam... By the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of God by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but 
The free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Condemnation over here, that's our X. Justification over here, that's our Y. That's our second point. Our second point, but it's Paul's whole point. It's everything Paul's talking about. Justification. It's what he's talking about. It's what he's been talking about, right? We were away for a week. But back up to the beginning of the chapter. What's Paul been talking about? Look at verse 1. He's talking about, has been talking about how we're saved by grace through faith. Probably why he gave Becky a whole set of songs this morning all about grace. Because it's everything Paul's been talking about. He's been declaring it, proclaiming it, celebrating it. The grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's been telling us we owe everything to God, reminding us everything we have is from God, convincing us salvation is because of God and only because of God. We're justified, forgiven and made righteous by him and only him. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's been Paul's theme this entire chapter. It's been Paul's theme this whole book, if you think about it. Which is why we entitled this study, Grace Revealed. Paul's whole exercise, his, his whole heart in writing this letter, is to reveal, is to convey, is to impart the knowledge of the grace of God. So as we come to our passage this morning, with four and a half chapters of momentum behind that theme, Paul's imaginary reader up in Rome is asking, Paul, I, I, I still don't get it. I hear you saying grace, 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 grace. But how does it work? And Paul is saying here this morning, this passage, let me tell you how it works. Let me give you an illustration. Let me run a comparison to try to convey how it works. You know how Adam committed that one sin? This is what Paul is saying in this passage. You, you remember how Adam committed that one sin? We didn't do it, he did it, but when he did it, it, it all got imputed to us. It came down on us, it made us guilty. You remember that? Yeah. That's the cross. We didn't do it. We weren't there. But just like one person's action made all of us guilty, another person's action made all of us righteous. We didn't do anything. But the cross is still imputed to us. And it sets us free. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Adam, much more, I'm verse 17, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, capital O, Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Paul's repeating himself a little bit because he really wants us to get this. That said, there's a, there's a small piece of clarification I want to call your attention to as well. Verse 18, he says, Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Same verse, he then says the free gift, salvation, came to all men resulting in justification. If he just left off there, he could leave us with the impression that everyone is, is saved. Everybody, all the time, it's automatic, it's universal. 
Verse 19, he, he clarifies that. By one man's obedience, many, verse 19, will be made righteous. Not all, many. Salvation is available. How do you reconcile this? Salvation is available to all, but it's actualized, it's realized by some, not all. Salvation is the free gift, Paul says it is in verse 18. It's available to all, but not all will accept it. Many will, many won't. Many will, many will look at it and send it back and say, I didn't order this. Take it back, I don't want it, and don't charge me for the shipping. But for those who accept Christ's free gift, justification. The righteousness of Jesus being imputed, overriding, overwriting, replacing the imputed sinfulness of Adam. Little deep this morning. Come up for air. If you want to dig deeper into this, my, my, the, my first suggestion, the first place I would go is a great book by Dr. Charles Ryrie called Basic Theology. It's a good one-volume introduction to systematic theology. I got some copies around if you want to borrow one. And in that book, in the chapter about the imputation of sin, Ryrie has an illustration that just lands it for me. Years ago, true story by the way, years ago a criminal in a state penitentiary is sentenced to death. He's been convicted of murder, capital crime, he's sentenced to death. The story got Dr. Ryrie's attention because the murderer had agreed to donate one of his eyes for a cornea transplant for someone who, who needed it. It was an experimental procedure at the time. It got a lot of publicity. In fact, the person receiving the transplant and the donor actually met for a photo op and People wrote articles about it. So fast forward, the person, the, the, the man, the criminal, the convict is put to death, he's executed. The eye surgically removed and the cornea transplanted successfully. A man went into a surgery blind, he walked down, he could see. But all of this was very new and it got Dr. Irie thinking. The implications hadn't been all you know, sussed out. So he poses a hypothetical. What if a police officer tried to arrest that man as he walked out of the hospital, the man who received the transplant. What if the police officer came up behind him, slapped cuffs on him, and said, you're a murderer? What do you mean I'm a murderer? You have a murderer's cornea. That makes you a murderer. The eye was in the murderer, now it's in you. That, that sin has been imputed to you. What's the judge going to say? He's going to say, No. I mean, yeah, the, the cornea was in the body of a criminal. And if it had stayed in the body of the criminal, it would have died as a result of the criminal's crime. But now it's in the body of a man who is righteous. And the cornea is as righteous as the man it belongs to. I read this three times before I grasped it. So if you're not tracking don't feel bad let me help i'm the cornea i was in adam i was a part of him when he sinned and so i was corrupt and i would have died in adam because that would be the punishment for his sin but 
by an even greater miracle than a cornea transplant, I've been transplanted. That's what Paul is talking about when he says justified. I've been transplanted into a righteous man. His name is Jesus. And today I live in him and no judge can touch me. If someone wants to call me a murderer and an adulterer and a thief, they'd be right on the facts, but they still wouldn't have a case. I can stand before God uncondemned, righteous, because Jesus is righteous and my life is in him. It's amazing, right? That's an amazing truth and it's an astonishing way to think about God's grace. It's also an awesome challenge. Because if my life is in him, and Paul just said that it is, if our life is in Christ, then the life we live in him should, kind of by definition, be with him and for him. An extension of him, a continuation, here's the third point, a continuation of his ministry. If I'm the cornea, transplanted from sinful man into righteous man, then it follows I ought to go where he goes and do what he does and be part of him living his life. That makes sense, yeah? So with that in mind, look again at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. God condemns those who defy him, blesses those who obey him. That's just how the universe is wired. The law of sowing and reaping, it's never been repealed. God condemns those who defy him, blesses those who obey him. Adam rebelled against God and was condemned not only himself, but he passed that condemnation on to his family. Jesus, the last Adam, obeyed God, and the Father blesses him with the family, you and me. And the question is, which man are we imitating? Which Adam, the first Adam or the last Adam, are we following? Not a deep mystery here. The, the deep mystery part is over. <laughs> We're on to application. We've wrestled with deep things. No more hidden truth. No, no big aha lurking here. Just, just an observation. The principles we've been talking about this morning, condemnation, justification, they're still in play today. Now, we can't impute either one. We can't impute condemnation or justification. We can't pass on that kind of curse or blessing because none of us is Adam and none of us is Jesus. We can't impute condemnation or justification, but we can impart obedience or disobedience. Promote it, foster it, encourage it, nurture it. How? We can impart obedience or disobedience by our obedience or disobedience. Again, not a revelation, but a reminder. When I obey, when I trust, when I rest and rejoice in God, when I follow him, is when I can be most used of him, is when I can hear from him most clearly because I don't have sin quenching his voice is when people can hear and see God in me most clearly. Because there isn't sin to distract. There isn't a conflicting message. 
is when people can smell the fragrance of Christ coming off of me when I obey and trust and rest and rejoice. When I obey and trust and rest and rejoice is when I can be most used of God. And the more I obey, trust, rest, and rejoice is the more I can be used of God. Because I'm cooperating with him. I'm going where he wants to go. I'm not pushing back against him. And the more I'm cooperating with him, the more I'll be blessed. Because the more I'm cooperating with God, the more people will be blessed through me. And that's how it works, right? Think about it. God has a plan. Knows what he wants to do with each of us. Knows what he wants to do with us. Knows what he wants to do through us. He knows what he has for me to do. He knows what he wants to empower me to do. If I'll let him. If I don't fight him. If I rest and trust and obey and rejoice in him. If I cooperate with him, I get to be part of verse 19. If I cooperate with God, I get to be part of many being made righteous. And there isn't a greater blessing. Jesus made me righteous. I hope he's made you righteous. If you're not sure, if you're not confident in that, please let's talk after service. I hope you've said yes to his free gift to the forgiveness and to the righteousness he purchased on the cross. If you did, if you have, you are righteous because Jesus made you that way. His obedience at the cross justified you, and it was yours as soon as you said yes to it. His obedience justified you. It's the only thing that could. It's the only thing that does. We're righteous today because of the obedience of Jesus. But I'll talk about me. I was introduced to Jesus through the obedience of Jesus' people. People who brought me to him, introduced me to him. Introduced him to me, really. People who nurtured my interest in him. People were, who were patient with me and praying for me when I wasn't ready for Jesus. A woman I was trying to sleep with told me, you don't want sex, you want Jesus. I was really sure she was wrong. She was really sure she was right. <laughs> and she was. A pastor named Chuck, who told me why I needed Jesus and made a whole library of messages available on cassette tape. Ministry of Firefighters for Christ got me those tapes, duplicated them by the dozens and sent them free of charge. No charge for the tapes or the duping or the shipping. They just showed up. A guy from Campus Crusade who, who met with me, sat with me, was so gentle with me, even as I was being harsh and unkind to him. Keep, kept encouraging me to ask questions, even though I was laughing, openly laughing at his answers. A guy named Tony, who looked me in the eye and said, stop fronting. You're faking it. A guy named Wallace told me I was making God too complicated. I needed to stop trying to understand everything and just give my life to him. Told me I wouldn't be able to solve anything until I gave my life to him. Two guys named Dan and Ben brought me into their lives, opened up their hearts to me, didn't even know me, 
All they knew about me was the, the ridiculous, blasphemous heresy I was spouting, all of the crazy beliefs I was sure were right. And they loved me anyway. And they told me that Jesus loved me anyway because, and I remember them saying, Jesus has big arms. Big enough even for a heretic like me. Another, game like, another game, guy named Mike wept with me. First time we met, within, within, within minutes of meeting, wept with me, welcoming to the family of God, even as I was saying, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> I'm trying to push him and God away from me. I could keep going, but you get the point. Those people, their obedience is how I came to let Christ's obedience make me righteous. I don't think about those guys enough. At one time or another, I've reached out to all of them but one. I checked another one off my list last month. I, I, I actually met one of the founders of Firefighters for Christ. I saw him at a conference, introduced myself, told him my story. I've got to do that. God has given me a chance to do that with, with everyone that I can remember except the Campus Crusade guy. Can't find him. But the point is they shouldn't just be names on a list. They shouldn't be to-do items that I've checked off. They should be reminders. The, the memory of those interactions should be a reminder of what resting in God and rejoicing in God and obeying God can do because it's what happened to me. God used their obedience to soften my heart. Use their obedience to chip away at my pride. Use their obedience to show me the truth and help me to trust. And if I thought about their obedience a little more, maybe I'd be a little more obedient myself. <laughs> Sobering to think about how often we're not, isn't it? And, and, and all, you know, for the same reasons, we get tired, we get preoccupied, we get frustrated, we think about ourselves, we serve our flesh, and we tell ourselves, that's okay. I'm still righteous. Jesus made me righteous. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I'm already forgiven. Jesus, Jesus died for that one too. And, and he did, and I am, and we are, but even so, how, I have to ask myself, how many times have I given people permission to sin, invited them to sin, how many times have I imparted disobedience, maybe without even knowing it, because that's what I've chosen to put on display in my life? Not thinking about the people who are watching, not considering the impact I'm having. You know, the cornea analogy is a good one. I really like it. I think you can tell. But it breaks down in one aspect. Sometimes when an organ is transplanted into a new body, into a new host, what can happen? Rejection. Yeah, you know this. Host body can reject the transplant. See, the analogy breaks down here because once we're in Christ, he never rejects us. But we can reject him. We can refuse to connect with him, refuse to cooperate with him. Jesus never rejects us, but sometimes we reject him, don't we? And when we do, listen, when we do, we make it easier for others to reject him, to not obey, to not rest, to not rejoice. What's the remedy for that? I have no magic bullet. <laughs> but I have one thought as we close. Look back once more at verse 17. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Adam, 
Much more those who receive abundance of grace. Underline that phrase. Abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. There in the middle. I think there's an opportunity. Abundance of grace. We have been given more than we deserve, right? That's sort of the definition of grace. So what is an abundance of grace? We've not only been given more than we deserve, we've been given more than we need. We have a surplus of grace. More than we need, more than we could use. We sang earlier, rhetorically, will your grace run out, Jesus? No! (laughs) We already have more than we know what to do with. Why? God has given us more than we need ourselves. He's given us grace to share. The abundance of grace we've been given is to distribute. We're overflowing with grace. We're not going to run out. So we can focus on giving it away. How do we remember to cooperate with God? I think that I think that this can help. I think letting God's word and God's people and and God's songs remind us why we're here. Verse 17, reigning in this life is all about looking for people, all about looking for opportunities to unload grace. That's what people did for me. I'm really, really sure that's what people did for you showed us grace, taught us grace, because that's what our lives as believers is supposed to be about. We're grace dealers, grace pushers, and Jesus is our supplier. Live your best life now, says the guy on TV. Never tells us how. Paul does. You want to reign in this life, he says? A big part of it is about finding people to reveal grace to, to impart grace to, to be gracious to, in the hope, in in the confidence, really, in 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 the certainty that if we do, as we do, many, verse 19, will be made righteous through the overflowing of grace that God pours into us and pours forth from us, many who died in Adam will find a new life in Christ. Jesus, oh, teach us that. Show us that. Remind us of that. Surround us by people, with people who who won't let us escape that. And make us people who will remind others of it. We're saved by grace. And we're being saved by grace. And others are being saved as they see the outworking of grace in our lives. And follow it back to the source. Jesus, you're the author of grace. Teach us day over day, moment over moment, what it is to point people to you.